Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest this week. Hirsch, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Absolute pleasure being here. It's great to see you, as I say. So, Hirsch, it'd be great in a couple of minutes or less if you could summarize a little bit about yourself, your career background, and some of your highlights. Sure. So my name's Hirsch, as you mentioned. I'm a regional director for UK and I at Data Robot, which is an AI platform company. I've been there for about 15 months. I joined as a strategic account executive and recently moved up into a leadership role about four or five months ago. I'm quite unique in terms of my whole 12-year career. I've always spent in the data analytics AI space, but I started very differently to other sales professionals, and we can maybe talk about that later. I started my career in consulting and then worked in-house, then to the pre-sales world, and then from there moved to the sales, the dark side, some people call it, but that persona. Awesome. It's a fascinating background you've got, and it's a big part of why I reached out to bring you on. So let's peel back the layers of a little bit about the earlier part of your career. I'm really curious to understand how you went from what you were actually studying at university, had a little look at your background and how that transitioned into the consultancy and then eventually sales. Just walk us through that journey. Yeah, it's interesting because so I studied information management at degree and master's level. And now that's one of the most applied courses at the University of Sheffield where I went. Back then it was quite new. I think about 15 years ago, whilst everyone knew data is important, I don't think people realised quite the, the impact it would have on the world as it does today. I sort of was really interested about it because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted, but I knew I love solving problems. I love logic. It was between that and sports science, which I know is completely different. And I was applying to universities for sports science degrees, and then I came across this. It was new, exciting. I always loved a new challenge, and it just grabbed me. I'm not even sure why, but I, I just got into it. So I did that at a degree level, came out at 22 after my master's, and it was something I wanted to carry on you know, focusing on, because I love the thought of getting value, helping businesses grow, from the usage of data. So yeah, back to your question then, how my career developed, I went into consultancy at first. So I got into a graduate scheme where I was exposed to lots of different blue chip companies, helped them analyze their data to get value. And back then it was more the BI analytics world, so reporting on the past. But even then, what I found myself was I never wanted to be on long-term engagements. I was very much always wanting to work with the sales team to almost sell the value of new technologies, new capabilities. So I was doing a lot of proof of values, almost like a pre-sales persona would do nowadays. Yeah, so that, that's where I started. I did that for two years. After that, I always wanted to go traveling. So rather than do it before working, because it was very competitive, it's even more competitive now, but to get onto graduate schemes, I thought, right, let me get my two years experience under my belt. And then my, me and my friend went traveling for six months which is an amazing experience. I was, I was 23. I did the, the standard, I think, 23 single guy route of Southeast Asia, New Zealand, Australia. And then I came back to a job, which I got while I was traveling. So having that exposure to lots of different companies in the two years consulting and the, the people I was working with, they all started offering me jobs because they knew I was away. So I went to work at Marks and Spencer's in the analytics, the big data analytics team there. And again, I was doing the same thing where I was never working on set projects, but almost innovating with different teams, internally selling new ways of using analytics and BI to help them get value from the data. Wow. It's uh, what a story. I mean, we've learned about 
your trips abroad and <laughs> probably, <laughs> won't, probably won't go into details of that. <laughs> <laughs> we can keep that one offline. But one thing I'm, I'm really curious about in everything that you just spoke about there, Hirsch, is you spent a lot of time in the data and the AI space. And we'll fast forward a little bit into your career as we walk through. But what was your why for, for data and AI in the first place? And what's made you stay in it for as long as you have? Just talk to us about the excitement about the space in that arena. There's all the cliche terms now, which like data is a new oil. I heard data is a new coal now because people don't want to use the word oil. I just spotted that, you know, this is an area which is ever growing. You know, there's always, as technology grows, companies can have more data. They can do more of the data. In the past, everything has always been about what did we do yesterday? What did we do last week? What did we do last month? What excites me is predicting the future. You know, in real, I used to love, you know, even when you watch movies when you're younger, the future, what's going to happen. And you, you never know, right? And we're all excited. If someone said, would you rather go back 100 years or forward 100 years? I'd guess you're going to say go forward 100 years, being in the sort of the space that we're all in. And for me, the thought of, you know, the more data being present, meaning that we can start predicting what happens is so exciting. That's sort of my draw towards data as a whole. My personality type is very much suited that I feel I can understand both the technical personas and needs and be able to translate that to business and vice versa. And again, earlier on in my career, that was really sort of powerful when consulting and being in pre-sales. Absolutely. And it's uh, clearly helped you really shape a, a fantastic career. So Let's fast forward a little bit until when you actually took on your first, let's say, meaningful, the, the first sales role that you really got your teeth stuck into. Just talk to us a little bit about that transition from being a consultant to being out in the field in sales and what that first year was like for you. Yeah, it was interesting because typically sales, especially in enterprise selling, normally they go through the journey of being a, a BDR, then inside sales, then commercial sales, and then enterprise sales and strategic, et cetera. Because of my role at Tableau, where I was a sales engineer in pre-sales, but I was in the probably the most senior team there where you're one-to-one aligned with an account executive. So every day for you know a year and a half when I was doing that specific role, me and the account manager that I worked with, a guy called James Smith, we looked after the financial services strategic accounts. I didn't do anything else. So it was probably the closest to being in sales whilst being in pre-sales. And my skill set my friends who I'm really good really close with still now at Tableau always used to take the mick out of me because on the scale of pre-sales you have the really techie types and the non-techie types and I was way more on the non-techie type I can't code for example however I was really good at solving problems which again I think is a good conversation topic for what I think makes good salespeople. but yeah I did that for a year and a half and I started to feel what I liked about the role was more aligned with the sales persona again solving problems putting the customer first, you know, navigating, coordinating teamwork within an organization. I really felt I would want my own business, essentially. I didn't like being the number two. I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to be, you know, in charge of my own destiny. So, yeah, I had really good sponsorship to be able to make that change. And then that first year, back to your question, it was difficult because I knew what I was getting myself into. I'd spoke to a few mentors that had made that change. I did my research and I'd spoke to people where they said, I think about 80 to 90% of people make that change from pre-sales to sales often fail and go back to pre-sales. They often don't realize how hard it is to get the meetings to even be there. 
you just take for granted when you're pre-sales when you come up to a great meeting and it goes amazing and you're like this is easy I, I can be in sales I, you know I did all the work here but you don't appreciate all the the graft or the effort all the planning that's done beforehand so I, I made sure I, I understood all that but I also knew a good few sales leaders that also did the same went from pre-sales to sales and they said you have to do it early if you go down the pre-sales route for too long it's more difficult to transition so I took the risk and that first year again it went really well in my first year, I landed really big clients. I did fall down some traps where I almost was trying to wear two hats at once. And that's what is really important that I moved from more the analytics space to the data science AI space because I intentionally wanted to be a bit out of my, my depth because if it was the same space that I'm in, I would be able to just answer every question because of my pre-sales background. Whereas in the AI space, I didn't need to go into the technical depths that sometimes people ask about. Absolutely. I think one of the things that's really fascinating in everything that you've said is Sometimes people have asked me, Alex, what are some of the pillars that have helped you be successful in your career so far? And one of the things that I've often spoken to them about is actually really obsessing over the, the technicalities of what it is that, you know, I, I do or what it is that I'm selling at that particular time. I think you have in that pre-sales background and actually as much as you maybe weren't the techiest of techies, you still really spent a lot of time really trying to understand what sits behind the thing that you're selling or whatever it is that you're offering. And then as you've made that switch into being in direct sales, I think you knowing and having that background and understanding of the technicalities of what you're offering probably helped you when it came to building trust and getting to that trusted advisor status with your customers. Would you say that's fair to say and something that you'd actively encourage for other salespeople out there that are maybe thinking about getting a bit more of an edge in their role? 100%, you know, Typically in the space I sell in, we have, we call the three legs of the stool. So we try and build champions and get value for the the business, obviously the data function. So typical chief data officers, chief digital officers and IT. So when I do speak to the data and the IT teams and building champions, you know, at CIO level, CDO level, I always drop in. I worked for a center of excellence. I used to do it myself. I felt the pain, which I think resonates. I also then would make sure I can drop in that I understand technically what they're talking about. So I'll have a conversation about their cloud migration just so they know I know what they're talking about, but then I won't let myself go into the trap of being the person they ask questions around. If they ask further questions about, look, we've got a dedicated team, let's take that offline. But I do want them to know that I get it. I'm not, there's a preconception of the old school sales persona, typically where you know, it felt like, you know, a number of years ago, there were types of salespeople that would just bring their army to the room and all they would do is organize a meeting and then, you know, have that relationship, go for the dinners and won't actually bring value themselves. I do pride myself in also bringing that value, which I think most sales, good salespeople nowadays are doing. Absolutely. And it says a ton about when you look at your track record so far. In all of that, Hirsch, you, you opened a, a can here because you spoke about pain, you spoke about champions, and off camera, we spoke a little bit about the playbook, as we like to call it. So can you help everyone out there understand, first and foremost, what the playbook is and what it means to you and what impact it's had on your career so far? Yeah, sure. If I can answer it back to front, so what impact had on my career? So I think every organization you work at, you're going to learn something, regardless of what it may be, whether it's, you know, how to handle company politics or my previous company I joined, which is also in the AI space, where I joined at Series B. So I learned a lot around what's it like to work for a real startup. We we're 15 people in the UK at the time in a WeWork. So again, learning that you have to take a lot of onus to yourself, 
It was a French headquarter company, so learning different cultures, which I'd never experienced. You're always learning, which is great. What I felt I needed in my next challenge was something what would help me develop my sales process, because as I mentioned, I didn't come through the traditional route. So I did a lot of research around what companies are successful in developing people. And it all just stemmed back to companies that adopt a sales playbook that, you know, is very much originated from, you know, John McMahon's legacy at PTC. So then I started, you know, speaking to companies in that space, really narrowing down what would be right for me. And what I found different in organizations, some organizations, it felt like they were forcing a playbook on people. And there's other organizations, which I felt taught you a playbook so that you want to use it to be successful. And there's a a number of great companies which are doing the latter, which the companies that we both work for. And that's why I joined Data Robot. And the impact it had on my career is, you know, I had an amazing first year. I've never had a, a year like that in sales. I hit 200% of my annual in the first half of the year and finished the year in 290%, which in a first year at a company was, was beyond what I expected. What I learned in that year, you know, I think is more than I've learned probably in my 11 years beforehand working. The parts of the playbook that I've learned, I think I'll keep forever, you know, regardless of whether, you know, I'm in a sales leadership role or any other role. There's certain elements of it which just make sense now. And I think we talked about this when we briefly spoke offline. I don't think I could work for a company that didn't adopt the playbook. So that's your question around how it's impacted my career. My thoughts on what the playbook is, I think this, I don't know, this is quite probably more trickier to explain. For me, the way I like to see it is like a, it's like a sat nav to help you get to your destination. And, you know, you have leading indicators, which are, you know, if you've got low petrol, which might be, you know, your your gauge says you've got low petrol might be, you know, you're not having enough meetings this quarter. You know, your oil's low because you've not done enough proof of values because you know you need X amount of proof of values in order to close X amount of deals. You know, that these are all the sort of navigations that you can track in terms of data metrics during, you know, your day-to-day life to get you to that end journey. Absolutely. I I love the sat-nav analogy. Sometimes the way I like to think about it is that we talk a lot about is sales and art, is it a science? Is it something in between? And I guess there's arguments on all of those sides of the fences, but I feel what the playbook ultimately does is it, it drives the science component of selling, right? It helps take an element of emotion away from both decision-making, but also the way that we think about a deal so that we can truly understand one, where we are and and two, be really clear about how do we execute in a repeatable fashion yeah. to drive results that give confidence on, on a forecast, but also give confidence to an entire GTM team. I'm sure we can both relate to the fact that when you've got a, a GTM function that is all centered around a core mission, a core vision, and a core approach to how we actually go out and execute, it's just a transformative way of approaching things. And it's interesting because I say transformative, but what we've seen is all of the businesses that have adopted that universal approach have all just been wildly successful. No, it's just, it's, right? It's just so obvious when you look at the trend and the leadership and for me, I, I, I used to hear about this playbook, um, again, back when I was at Tableau and there were organizations that adopted it and we used to approach a lot of us at Tableau to come and join them. And I never realized the impact that it would have. It was probably companies that stemmed off of BMC. So that sort of layer of organizations. But yeah, I wish I went into a company like that earlier. And what, it goes back to what you're saying there about the science and art. I'll give you a really good example, which was really apparent to me. So I always felt before I joined Data Robot, so my first playbook company, I was really good at building champions. 
I was proud that I built great champions in my deals beforehand. However, now I know what I know, I was clearly unconsciously competent about doing so. So I naturally would do things that would build great champions. I didn't realize I used to test champions, but I never actually thought about it in that way in terms of build and test. I never built plans around it. And then, you know, part of the reason I wanted to join a company that adopts a playbook is if I want to go into sales leadership, which now I'm in, I need to be able to articulate how I do these parts of the sales process so I can help others do the same. And now, you know, when I joined Data Robot and I was working on my deals last year, for example, I was building plans and I was really thinking about, right, I need to do at least these four or five things for my champion to build them up before I can at least even think about testing them. And then my test needs to be at the level where it's not too much, otherwise you're going to scare them off. So actually, should I drop them a WhatsApp rather than drop them an email just to see if they reply? Right, we're getting to that level. We're actually becoming friends rather than, you know, just colleagues. And that was things I did. I did actually do that beforehand. I do think I was good at building champions, but I didn't know I was doing it. And I wasn't able to teach people what I was doing because I didn't actually have any documentation or process around it and repeatability, like you mentioned. Absolutely. I, we're getting super tactical here. And it's just a call out to anyone who's listening now that if you're getting any form of value from this podcast right now, a five-star review would be massively appreciated. And if you're watching this on YouTube, also please be sure to like, comment, share and subscribe. So Hirsch, really appreciate all of these insights so far. It's been super valuable. I want to get a little bit more specific actually on running and, and executing an enterprise level and scale deal because you're talking a lot about some of the ingredients that go into that. Maybe if you think about uh, while protecting the sensitivity of the customer, maybe one of the biggest or best or, or, or most valuable, one of the deals that really sticks out in your mind, maybe if you could walk us through some of the, the key highlights of that type of deal from a sales process standpoint, what really stood out? What were the things that you did really well? And as you look back on that deal, what are some of the learnings that you could maybe share to help someone else navigate a pretty significant enterprise deal out there? Sure. Yeah. So one deal just springs to mind when you, you said that. And obviously I'll keep the client name confidential, but I'm really proud of it because the end to end life cycle deal was 16 meetings, which for me is a record for, you know, a sizable 600K deal. So yeah, I'd like to talk you through that deal actually. So the initial conversation came with the COO of the company and a marketing director, which was a self-pipeline generated conversation. They didn't really, this is typical in the AI space, by the way, they don't, you don't, companies typically don't know what they don't know. It's very much a new space for them. It's sometimes with data robot, you're having to help organizations create budget for something they didn't know they needed budget for at the beginning of the year because they didn't know they had a problem or they didn't know the problem could be solved with AI. So this conversation was very much discovery led, just talking about business problems, business strategies, what's happening, what's not going well. And from the back of that, we decided to have a new business meeting with this, with this company where we wanted to talk about where we've helped similar companies with similar problems and then showcase our platform. We did that meeting. It was great. We got lots of, you know, pain points from the company, which we felt we could help with. We agreed next steps. That was great. Did a great follow up email and then no response. I'm sure you've had that before. Been there. Yeah, good. It's not just me. So no response. And I emailed again, you know, and sent some content, which I thought was relevant with some links and, you know, tried to bring more value to show that, you know, I'm really thinking about them because I was thinking about them. I'm sure you've been there second time. So then what I did, this was actually quite out of my comfort zone. Uh, I haven't, I know a lot of people do a lot of videos, et cetera, but I hadn't done one before. But I um, built a one page framework of 
what we call the three whys. So why do anything? Why date a robot? And why now? And I had, I wanted to build this for this client after just one discovery meeting and one new business meeting, which, you know, I probably didn't have, well, I didn't have all the accurate metrics or the information. However, I did understand their pain and I did feel that we had a solution for it. So I built this one pager. I really studied their annual reports. I used metrics from the annual reports to make estimates on how I could improve their lead conversion, for example, in one of the use cases, how I can improve, you know, operation metrics. I put all the metrics I assumed in red and I did a five minute video and I sent it to the CEO and the marketing director and I talked through why I think they should do something, why Data Robot could help and why now and talked through the assumptions I made. On the back of that video, I got a response straight away and then we got, we had that follow up meeting. And then from that meeting, to the deal site. So that gap was three months, was three months from the discovery to that video where I got no response. And I sent that video eventually after a month and no reply. I, I tried a couple of times. I thought, right, it's either in or out now. I need to decide what I'm going to do in my time. I've got lots going on. You know, we've got so much happening at Data Robots. So exciting. I have to qualify my own time. And then, yeah, from that meeting to the deal closing was another three months. And that included the POV, planning the POV, contract negotiations, et cetera. So I guess going back to your message is a, you know, go above and beyond. I think there's no need to still give up quite easily. If you do really feel that you've got the you know, solution to their problem and you can bring them value. Secondly, I didn't go into depth of it in, in that description to take up too much time, but make sure you delegate. So in that scenario, my colleague, who's the pre-sales director at Data Robot, Kane, he at the time was working with me on the opportunity he did an amazing job of building technical champions. And for me, what a real good um, takeaway from that is makes you, you know, you work as a team and delegate the ownership of, you know, champion building, owning a relationship, taking responsibilities away from just all on yourself. So yeah, they're the, probably the two biggest takeaways from that deal. But the main point was around that business case we built. And because we built that business case so early, that three whys, as I put it, it meant by doing it so early that by the end of it, it was a, a great document. It's actually used now at Data Robot for all the trainings. But the reason it was so extensive is because it was started at the beginning. If you try and do a document like that at the end, you don't actually get all the metrics. But when you do it early, you then end up asking five, six people around the organization to help you. You've already got a foundation in place. And the COO actually used this document to the CEO to get the sign off for this deal. Hirsch, the so many gems just from that example. I feel like I could do a second podcast just kind of <laughs> picking out all of the different gems from it. So so thanks for being as, as transparent as you are and for breaking that down in such a systematic way. It really had all of the ingredients right. First and foremost, passion, drive, hunger in the way that you stayed tenacious, right? You went after it and you got creative. You found a way back in by doing things a little bit differently. But also you had in your mind, I've either got to qualify this in or qualify it out at some point. We need to hit a go-no-go because you need to make sure that there's a return and investment on your time. And the second thing it really brought to my mind is one of the best deals I ever did in my career was for 8.5 million. And over two years. And one of the best things about that deal was how much time and obsession we had around just truly driving value for that organization. And I think nowadays that term value kind of gets tossed around a little bit, you know, sell on value, sell on value. But your example was a great example of actually not just using that as a word that gets thrown out there, but really getting into the weeds of the metrics that matter 
to multiple personas that really matter within the organization, right? CEO, CFO, and all of the other influencers and, and the potential EB in the account. So great example and, and appreciate you sharing that one. That was like one of my smaller deals of the year, probably the one I was most proud of. Yes. Um, yeah. That can often be the case, right? Yeah. It's not all about the value, right? Some of the, the, the smaller deals can actually be some of the ones that have all of those main ingredients. So one thing I just want to fast forward to a little bit now with you, Hirsch, is you, you've spoken about becoming a leader fairly recently. So first and foremost, massive congratulations oh, on you. that. But it's a big change, right? You're now stepping out of the, the shoes of running these cycles directly, and it's now much more about y- your team. So help us understand more about the mindset and the real emotion that went into that moment when you heard you were getting that promotion and really what the last few months have been like since you made the transition. Yeah, I was ecstatic in terms of the emotion. That's part, like, as I mentioned, that's part of the reason I joined a company which had a playbook because the gap I had in my own career was I was doing everything from an art perspective, not a science perspective. And um, I think even from that perspective, but also the amount I've improved as a salesperson over the last year really set me up, has set me up, I think, well to now lead a team to be successful. What does that first few months really look like? Yeah. Is there a bit of imposter syndrome? Did you walk with your, your chest held high, like I, I've got this? Just bring us into the mind of her yeah. first few months on the job. Yeah, no, definitely imposter syndrome. Also felt really weird. Uh, and I felt this most two weeks ago when we were in Vegas for our SKO. Every time I'm away, I'm very customer driven. I'm always like responding to my emails to, to my clients or, you know, always have tasks still at the back of my mind to client facing. And two weeks ago at SKO was the first time in my career where everyone who relied on me, my direct team was with me. So I wasn't actually having to respond to emails because I could just speak to people that I needed to catch up with face to face. So that was a real telling moment for me that life changed. But back to your question around how I felt imposter syndrome, I was thinking, wow, like I'm looking after an enterprise major accounts team as my first leadership role. You know, there's people in my team that have been selling for 20 years. They, you know, there's people in my team that I still learn off and I'm continuing to learn off and they're expecting me to help them. So I did have that, but I also was excited. I'm confident in my own ability. I I think I'm going to bring great value. And even within the first month, one of my colleagues, Steve, he you know, told me how much I've helped him develop already within the first month and telling me that the differences that I'm bringing, you know, there's so many things that my currently, my current boss um, who used to manage him has that I will never be able to, you know, help with him. And I would still say to Steve, speak to, speak to my boss because she's incredible in many ways. But there are certain areas, you know, that I've, because I sold the technology myself, I could actually help him with practically, which, you know, was new to him. So that was really rewarding hearing that the first month. I really like the approach where I heard from a mentor of mine of around show, then tell, then observe. So the first time, if you feel like someone in your team isn't quite getting, you know, an idea or a way that could really help them, show them yourself, get your hands dirty, dig in. And I've done that. The second time, make them do it, but you tell them, you know, how to do it. And the third time you observe them and they tell you how they're doing it, but you're there just shadowing them. And I've tried that approach actually with a few of my team and it's worked really well. So yeah, that's a tip that I've learned that I would happily, you know, recommend to everyone else when leading others. But yeah, I'm now really excited. I've digested it. It's been three months. The imposter syndrome is still a little bit there, but not as much. I'm quite confident that this year is going to be as good as last, even though from a leadership perspective, I'm really excited about the team. I think, 
you know, the team's going to really overachieve. The UK, our organisation did 220% as a region last year. So it's really exciting. I hope we can do more this year. It sounds like a, a phenomenal time to be a part of your team. And I've got no doubt you guys will go out there and, and absolutely crush it. One thing I wanted to understand a, a little bit more about is, you know, as you've gone and taken on this role, I'm sure before you went into it, you had some preconceived ideas around what management may actually be like. And, and we've all <laughs> spoken about that let's say, linear career path that a lot of people think about all the way from SDR right the way through to leading a, a majors or enterprise team like you are now. So what preconceived ideas did you have before the role and have they either been validated since you've started or has your perspective now changed? I always thought it was very much managed by spreadsheets and you just sit there behind the computer, you know, you don't meet clients anymore. You're just completely looking at numbers, forecasting, et cetera. I do think there probably are some companies that are still like that. I'm not, I'm not saying all of them, but there are definitely are some that still are like that. I think what the playbook enables and why companies that adopt the playbook are different is because we're all about coaching development. So anytime that I have spare, I'm working with reps to help you know progress their deals or coach them a certain part of, of the process that they could you know work on or just be there to brainstorm with meet clients with them you know the way we work is very collaborative and I benefited that as a rep bringing in my my manager to a lot of my meetings brainstorming with her lots of ideas you know using her for advice and the same I'm, I'm really enjoying doing that back it's very different to what I thought was the case maybe two three years ago but when I joined Data Robot and you know what I see in other playbook companies I knew straight away leadership here is definitely for me because it's not sitting behind on a spreadsheet it's, it's far from that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's often that line of separation that I call out between being a manager and a leader. Yeah. You know, managers, I think some of the connotations that come along with that is being a little bit spreadsheet driven, waking up on a Monday and saying how many meetings this week and, you know, what's the pipeline, but not actually having that thought about what coaching and development am I thinking about for my team? When I look at you know, the state of the team at the moment, where are the areas I can actually add value and, and optimize this team? So I think that coaching and development piece is a fundamental part that sometimes can go amiss when you, you hear these horror stories about managers and, and, and people that are just sweating over numbers, but not actually starting to really show a level of compassion for the team and truly thinking about how they can add value. Do you think that's a fair statement based on your 100%, experience? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, that, that, that says a lot then. I'm glad to hear it. When you look ahead now then, Hirsch, you know, I think a lot of people will be curious. You're now in this particular role. How much of your career as you now look ahead is almost by design versus by opportunity? And to be a little bit more specific there, I think a lot of people are in seat saying, you know, I want to be, whether it's a CRO or I want to be in this particular position. I've then spoken to other people who have ended up in their roles almost just because that's where the companies needed them at a time. And then their careers just ended up in a number of different ways, whether it's abroad, here, or doing a, a completely different function to what they expected. So that's a really long-winded way of asking you, as you look ahead, how much of your career is already pre-mapped out in your mind versus you just opening yourself up to say, I'll be where Data Robot needs me or where whatever company needs me? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So it's changed over time. In my mid-20s, I was very much thinking I want to be CEO or 
C-level of a, a very large company. Or at the time when I was even consulting, I wanted to be, I wanted to go and to be a partner at a major consultancy. And at that time when I thought, right, I want to be at that level, I was specifically gearing my career to get exposure in every angle. So I did consulting. I worked for a few blue chip organizations and then I worked for a technology company and I thought, right, I'm completely well-rounded now. So when I step up, I've got the foundation to do, you know, lead an organization. Part of the reason also why I looked into sales, because I saw this was in 2015 when I first moved to Tableau, so that's seven years ago, that 75% of the FTSE 100 CEOs at the time came from a sales background. So part of my my foundation of thoughts of going to sales was around, right, if I want to be a strong leader organization, I need that accolade to as part of my, my set. So that was back then. Things changed, as, as you know, and that was obviously a time. So I'm 33 now, so that changing my ambition from 26 to 33 is, is a time in your career when you change completely. Now, I don't really focus on necessarily what title I'm going to get. I just want to make a big impact. I don't think I'll ever not work for a technology company. So since moving to the the tech landscape seven, eight years ago, I feel at home. I do feel like I'd either want to get to a stage of, you know, being an EMEA leader or CRO. I understand the implications of if I want to be a CRO at the company, a type of company that that I'd want to work at, I'd probably have to move to the US. So that's more of a lifestyle choice. But personally, I really want to, you know, have a growth and continued learning at Data Robot, and then I'd potentially want to go into as my next step an organization again adopting a playbook a top level and start earlier and watch that grow from very early on and I think doing that would be really rewarding for me which you know by the time you know I want to stay at Data Robot for a number of years and grow there and then that happens that's probably that would hopefully finish in about 10 years so yeah, maybe we'll have part three then in 10 years. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't wait to see all of this unfold. There's really just one other strand I want to just explore with you here, Hush, which is we've danced around the edges of really what makes great or elite level salespeople. And we'll be remiss not to talk about that seeing as we're on the elite level podcast here. So help us understand what you think really at, at its core makes and, and builds elite level sales talent. Yeah. So... For me, the best salespeople solve problems, whether it be for their clients or whether it be internally. I think the day-to-day job, if you break it down, whatever you're doing, if you're trying to bring value to your clients, you're solving a problem. Whether you're trying to get the right people to work with you, you're solving a problem. You need to be customer-driven and you need to be a team player. So they're the three really, they're not the characteristics, but they're the three areas I think are really important for a salesperson to be successful. In order to do that, you know, we internally adopt the ICE criteria but I very much have like my own spin on it, which is very relevant to the space of AI. So we hire on intelligence, character, coachability, and then experience. But for me, I twist on the intelligence because when I look at IQ and EQ, IQ is really important because the AI space is complex. As I mentioned, we sell when we sell AI, you have to have IT, especially in the enterprise space, you need IT, data, and the business involved. So to be able to understand problems from all these three different areas and be able to translate them to one another, to be able to interpret that and then put it all together in one business case, you have to be smart. It's it's not easy. And then in terms of EQ, as I mentioned earlier, it's sometimes telling organizations who are you know, large in nature that there's a solution to problem they didn't know they had a problem, a solution for, or they didn't even know they had the problem. So building the right champions, especially in our space, is ever so important. 
And doing that in the three legs of stool I mentioned can be difficult because how you build a champion within IT is very different to how you, you know, a CIO, what's important to a CIO is very different to a CFO, which is very different to a CDO. So having that ability to empathize and empathy is a, a really key word in this to build the champions here is really important. So I specifically look at the intelligence in that angle. In terms of character as well, why I look at a different angle is around a lot of people haven't worked in this space before. A lot of people want to come into the AI space and learning the playbook, as you know, from, you know, eight months ago, you, you obviously you did some, I understand you did some prep before you joined as well, but it's difficult because there's a lot to learn. It's, it's fascinating, right? Every part of the sales process that you, you thought you did naturally, you took for granted, a playbook company has a granular process around it. So you can be an expert in every tiny part. Like I mentioned with champion building, there's that for everything, right? So learning all of that plus a new space, which is new to everyone at the moment, being the AI world is difficult. So you need that character to be able to, you know, really motivate yourself to do all of this whilst enjoying life. And that's really important to us a day of robot. You know, I was telling you yesterday we had a reboot day and like we have a day where everyone just chills out and has some time for mental well-being and refreshing yourself. And again, that's something that the the three RDs, myself and my two colleagues in the UK working with Vibos Kira are really passionate about. So we want people to do all of that, but also not let it take over their life. We don't want people to be, you know, sacrificing their weekends and evenings. We want people to have a, a, a healthy lifestyle. So that character element is really important. That's and, helpful. I was just taking in the fact that I've heard about trips to Vegas, rest and recharge <laughs> days. So I'm pretty sure you're going to get a bit of a recruitment drive off the back of uh, listening yeah. to this one. No, yeah, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, it's really important to us actually because there can be a stigma with companies that adopt the playbook. I found where there isn't that balance and that's actually the reason I joined Data Robot because that balance is prevalent at every level of the leadership that is at the organisation and I think what the unique part we have in the UK is whilst we're a, a series G company and you know, we've had over a billion dollars of funding in the UK we operate at a much smaller level because we still just start getting started and like I said it's exciting to got 220% but you know myself the other two RDs and my boss Kira we have a real opportunity to shape the culture of the sales culture specifically of the UK. And we're really excited by it and we're really enjoying it. You know, we're doing things a bit differently. We're doing, you know, offsites regularly. We're having days like the reboot day at a company level. We're, we're having days where we're saying, bring your family to, let's all meet one another. And, you know, really trying to have that balance is, is really key to us, which is fun, right? You don't want to just work hard. You want to work hard and play hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and building companies is fun, right? I mean, I've certainly been at some of the larger corporates out there and and had a great opportunity to be a part of some really fast growing companies like I am now and, and that's the same for you Hirsch and it's just fun isn't it you know if you've got that little bit between your teeth where you just love building you love building amongst the best and being a part of a great team there's no better way to do it right than working for an organization that that runs a playbook in a set way and gets everyone really excited about the vision and the mission. So it's awesome to hear that's the case for you. Yeah. Hirsch, I've got one last question for you. And that question is, if you were giving one piece of advice to that person who's out there right now looking at their career and they want to go from good to elite, what's that single best bit of advice that you'd give to that person? Oh, put me on the spot there. I've found two, so two parts to this answer. One is Whilst you can't base your whole career on data and metrics, I do think make decisions based on data. That's something I never did beforehand, before joining a playbook company, where I would analyze my own business, whether it 
as a sales professional, but whatever profession you're in, if you just think I should work on this or I'm weak in this part of my, my day-to-day life or in my career or strong in one area, use data to actually check if that's the case and use data to help you make decisions on what you should be working on because that's the fact. You know, I've done that quite often where, for example, in the sales world, I would think this opportunity is great or, you know, this opportunity is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at the moment. But I look at it and I think, actually, I've only met them X amount of times in the last month or I'm only meeting the same person. I'm not going wide in the account. And this is a sales example, but it could be in any any profession. But having these data metric points to help you make your decisions, how to then operate. And for in that example, be right. Okay, now I've seen the data. I should be seeing more people in the three legs of stool I mentioned that I aim for. Or, you know, I need to be aiming for two meetings a week with this company. If I'm looking to, you know, we're looking to start the partnership and close a deal in, in, in two months, I should be meeting them at least two, three times a week. Now, I've only met them once a week. That's not on track. So being data driven to help you guide you is one, the first part. And the second part is around, you know, my example of change where I changed from um, coming into the sales, sales world. I don't think I got doubted when I went into sales at the enterprise level. Some of my closest friends, even I mentioned, I'm still good mates with, and when they see us, they'll laugh at Tableau who, when I made the move, they were like, Hirsch, are you actually going to go straight into enterprise selling where, you know, you're going to get, a million plus quota and you're going to be working with the big banks. Like surely you want to start with like smaller accounts and you know, you're going to struggle with that. If you back yourself and you, you're confident in your own ability, go with it. And, and I did back myself and I've proven it's worked out great. So yeah, back yourself. You know, if you want to do something a bit different, go for it. And then at a more granular level, you know, try and use data and metrics and, you know, form a habit to, to do so to able to help guide what you should be doing. What a fantastic way to round off, Hirsch. Great advice. I'm handing you a virtual trophy for your, your first <laughs> podcast and uh, for coming on and, and absolutely crushing it with some great insights. So thanks again for coming down. To all of the listeners out there or anyone who's tuning in, hopefully you got some really valuable insights from this episode. And if you did, please be sure to leave a five-star review on any of the podcasting platforms and like, comment, share and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. And we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for having me.